You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, uh, well, in 2010, uh, me and my wife were asked uh, by a, a group of people to travel with them to Israel for a nine-day tour. I was asked to go uh, to lead worship, so I got a free ticket to just go to Israel for a week and a half. And it was amazing. I don't know how many of you have been to Israel, but it was, it was a, an epic trip. We, uh, we got to sail on the Sea of Galilee together as a crew. Uh, we got uh, baptized in the Jordan River, which I, I uh, realize Christianity isn't a, a merit system, but if it were, could we all, I got like 15 bonus points that day. So uh, we did that, we, uh, we stood at the mouth of the garden tomb where tradition says that our savior rose from the grave and defeated death and we sang worship hymns to him. It it was just, it was epic. It was so amazing. Uh, But when I think about that time, that trip, the, the best part about it for me was not at any one of those locations. It was actually on the bus uh, on our way to Jerusalem. So, uh, It was our first time to actually head into the city and um, we were were sort of snaking our way uh, around sort of the mountainside to to get to uh, Jerusalem. And our tour guide um, had us all get out our Bibles on our laps. And what he wanted us to do was to open to the book of Psalms to this group of Psalms toward the back of the book called the Psalms uh, of Ascent. Have you heard that before, the Psalms of Ascent? So it's a, it's a if you're not familiar, it's a group of Psalms toward the end of the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, uh, that all begin with the same phrase in Hebrew, a Psalm of Ascent or a Psalm of Degrees or of Rising. And it's titled that because these Psalms were meant to be read by Jewish families as they made their pilgrimage from wherever they lived to the capital city of Jerusalem uh, to, to worship God for these three annual feasts that happened every year. So in order to sort of settle their hearts and prepare their minds for the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem, they would read these 15 Psalms on their journey uh, to Jerusalem. And so it seemed fitting to our tour guide that we would uh, read them on our little pilgrimage to the city as well, just like the Jews of old did in our big tour bus with air conditioning cruising on the mountainside. So it was very, uh, very authentic. And, uh, and he assigned, he started assigning folks at random on the bus uh, different psalms to read. So there's 15, he picked 15 folks to read it. And when it got to me and Kelly, uh, he assigned Kelly to read Psalm 127, uh, which is that classic psalm that uh, sort of celebrates having lots of babies, stuff like that. Now, this might not seem significant to you hearing that, but uh, it meant something to me because I had some insider knowledge at that moment that the folks on the bus didn't have, and that was that my wife was uh, late. <laughs> and, uh, and it was a very big deal to me that my wife was late because this was coming on the heels of, for us, three consecutive miscarriages. Uh, and a corrective surgery to boot. And so this was a very big deal that, w- that this was happening at all. And I couldn't help but wonder as she was assigned that Psalm, if this was like God giving us a little 
insider information, like a little wink and nod thing. So anyway, so she's sitting there, she, you know, she opens it up and she starts reading. She comes across verses like this. She's reading this out loud on the bus. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And of course, you know, she gives me the glance after she reads that because she knows I'm staring her down. I'm giving her the look. You, you know, it's the girl, you pregnant look, you know. So. And, uh, and wouldn't you know, we made it to Jerusalem and that next morning she took a pregnancy test and she was in fact with child who is lively, our firstborn. So uh, this Psalm uh, holds a, a particularly special place in my heart and I hope uh, over the, the course of the next few minutes together that, that God will make this uh, as sweet and as meaningful and helpful uh, to all of us here as well. Because the message of this psalm teaches one of the most um, helpful and beautiful realities in the whole Bible. In some ways, it's a summary statement of what the whole Bible is all about. There's virtually no biblical story that I can think of for which this particular psalm doesn't uh, shed some helpful light on. And in fact, um, this might sound needlessly dramatic, but I believe understanding and applying the truth of this psalm is in some ways the difference between rest and exhaustion, life and death, even heaven and hell. I think that's what's at stake with understanding and applying uh, the thesis of this psalm. And so uh, out the gate, I just, I just wanna clarify uh, that we're only gonna make it two verses deep into this psalm today. Uh, uh, Rodney can finish out the rest at, a, at another point. Uh, I don't know how I wasn't able to make it through five verses, but uh, I can't do it. So, uh, so he'll pick up uh, the back half. Um, so no angry emails, you know, that I didn't do the whole thing. I told you up front. Uh, so here we go. We're going to jump into the text. If you have your Bible, get it out. <clears throat> this psalm uh, comes out really strong right out the gate. And uh, it's going to be answering this very important question for us. And the question is essentially this. How do we work in a way that works? I couldn't have made that more confusing. Um, so... I, let me say it a different way. Um, how can we ensure that our labor is not done in vain? That the work we do in this life will not be in the final estimation done in vain. That's, that's what this Psalm is getting to the heart of. And to show you what I mean, we're gonna jump into it. Uh, we're gonna start just right here at verse one. <clears throat> we're gonna read the two verses we're dealing with this morning. Uh, the, the author of this Psalm is Solomon. This is a wisdom Psalm. This is one of only, I think, two Psalms that he wrote uh, in the Psalms. And uh, it goes like this. Here's what Solomon <clears throat> has to say. Verse one, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, or those who build it, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Okay, so 
These are the first uh, couple verses of the psalm, and this is really the thesis statement of the remaining three verses that are to follow. So it's super important this morning that we uh, get a clear sense of what he's trying to say here. So, so let's get a lay of the land as we begin. What are the sort of the elements that are at work in these couple verses? Let's get uh, familiar. The first thing we notice, right, is that there's some activities happening. He details some activities. There's a, there's a house being built, right? And there's a, there's a city being watched, a house and a city. And I think it might be more helpful uh, to think of those two specific activities as um, categories or uh, a way of, of sort of shorthand communicating some, some bigger things that, that those two ideas are meant to catch. Uh, like, like think of them as, as buckets in which most of human existence kind of falls into. The, 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 the building of a house, the, the guarding of a city, creating and preserving, pro- providing and, and protecting. That's, that's kind of what is trying to be captured in these two uh, individual sentences. For instance, uh, when he's talking about building a house, well, that word house in the Hebrew is this word beit. And this word is really rich. It means all sorts of things. In the Old Testament, it can mean building a house, like a brick and mortar structure. It can mean that, but it can also uh, mean a house as in a a lineage of people, the house of Jacob, right? Like the line of people that comes from this person is the beit of Jacob. So it could mean that. It can also refer to the place where pilgrims go, for instance, to worship God at, the beit of the Lord, the house of of the Lord, right? The temple in Jerusalem was called the Beit. So it has a, a range of meaning. Talking about um, building a house then can mean as, as little as building a structure, but I think it means more than that. It's meant to, to communicate the idea of things like establishing a family or, or the place of worship, creating, making, providing for, etc. Those types of things, okay? That's bucket one. Part of our life, a large part of our life falls into those types of activities, right? Right there. And then watching a city, the same thing uh, would be true of a city in its narrowest sense. What is he talking about? Well, he's, he's talking about physically watching over or guarding a, a city. That's what he's saying. But of course, I mean, we know there's, there's 10,000 other guarding, watching over, preserving, protecting like activities that this is meant to capture. So don't read this Psalm this morning thinking that this only applies to me if I'm constructing a home or sitting on a wall of an ancient city. That's not, that's not what's, what's meaning to be said here. It's, it's bigger than that, okay? And it's important we clarify this here uh, because what Solomon is about to say about these activities is profound. And in some ways, it's, it's kind of jarring and, and it's, um, it's paradigm shifting. Because what he's about to say about all of these sum total of activities in our life is this. If anything meaningful is to get done in your life, it is impossible without the Lord. It is impossible without the Lord. The, the Lord is the decisive doer in all our doing. Look again at verse one. 
Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So now let's be clear. There's two parties doing things here, right? People who build houses and the Lord who builds. Unless the Lord builds, those who build, right? So there's people building and there's a Lord building. There's people watching over the city and there's the Lord watching over the city. Both are doing the doing, but without the Lord, nothing gets done. That's what the text says, unless the Lord builds, right? Unless the Lord watches over, meaning if the Lord isn't building or isn't watching, it isn't happening. You see that? That's what he's saying. Now, now I, I say that, that this is um, jarring and, and kind of paradigm shifting because in my estimation, this really kind of kicks at the goads of so much of what we believe ourselves to be as people. Um, this is sort of like an autonomy disruptor, <laughs> this verse. Uh, if there's one thing that we are really um, known for as sort of modern Westerners, isn't it the fact that we are an independent people, right? I mean, that's, that's what we are. We, are. we are independent DIY folks, not just in this country, but sort of the whole modern Western thing is so much about that, that I did it my way, Frank Sinatra thing is what we do so well in this text. This text is calling our bluff. It's, it's saying, you're not as independent as you think you are, right? Houses get built when God shows up. Like cities are protected when God shows up. And if God doesn't show up, nothing gets done, no matter how hard you try. If you're being taken care of in this life, if, if anything is being accomplished in your life or built or, or secured or protected, you can thank God for that. God is the decisive doer in all our doing. Do you see that? And this bothers most people. It bothers us because it disrupts our notion that, that our fictional notion of being autonomous, standalone, independent folks. But guys, this is Christianity, right? Like if, if you're new to this whole Jesus thing, let me be the first to burst your bubble. If you're signing up to be a Christian, you are signing up to be dependent and needy and weak because being a Christian means acknowledging that you need God for everything. That's what you're admitting when you're signing on the dotted line. I need God for everything. Now, now I want to um, pause here because I just said something that um, I've been really racking my brain all week trying to think of how, how to frame this because I, I'm concerned that, that this might um, come off confusing. It's been confusing for me all week. Like, What, what, am, what am I saying? Are, are we saying that an, unless I'm inviting God into all of my plans, that I physically can't do anything? Like is, that, is that what the text is saying? That we lack the ability to do anything? 
Well, well no, I, I, I don't think that's what this is saying. Because the, the truth is, if you just think about it for a moment, the world is, is full of people doing things all the time without the slightest regard for God, right? There's billions and billions of people not inviting the living God into their decision-making, right? So th this text doesn't say that without God, you can't labor. You sure can, right? It's the same tension that we seem to run into in the New Testament. You remember uh, Jesus in John 15, five, remember when he's talking with his disciples before he's crucified, he says this, uh, uh, verse five, I am the vine, right? You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? What does he say? Nothing. But, but does nothing mean nothing? Like no thing, like I can't do any thing. I don't, I don't think so. That, that verse wouldn't make sense if that were true because he's inviting them to abide in him. I think you can do plenty of things without abiding in Jesus. You probably did some this morning, right? You can do work. You can go to work, you can build things, you can watch over things, you can earn a living, you can move up in your company, you can move down in your company, you can get married, you can move cities, you can date people, you can plan vacations, you can do all sorts of things, right? We can do all sorts of things. The terrifying thing about this text is not that you can't do anything. The terrifying thing is that you can do all sorts of things and in the end, discover that you've done nothing. That's what's terrifying. And there is a word for that phenomenon and it shows up three times in two verses. Vanity. In vain, in vain. In vain, look at verse two. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Did you hear all the activity going on in that verse? There's things being done here. This person is, he's up before the sun, grinding all day, going to bed after everyone else is down, his mind is racing. This is the guy that's got two iPhones, right? He's hustling, he's stressed, he's doing all sorts of things. The weight of the world is on their shoulder. And when God looks at that frenzy of activity, he says over all of it, vanity, vanity. All is vanity. What a nightmare to think you and I can pour our life out on our plans and projects only to come to the end and realize we've wasted our existence. That should make us shudder. And I don't want that for us. I don't want that for us. In fact, uh, let me give you this morning three warning signs that you might be, in fact, laboring in vain as you build your house, right? Three ways that you and I can test ourselves to see if the person that Solomon is talking about in Psalm 127 is us, 
okay? Three, three, three warning signs by which to evaluate if you're laboring in vain as you build your house. Number one, if you're building the house with an anxious heart. Did you hear the language of verse two? Look at, look at again at how Solomon describes the vain laborer. They are, quote, eating the bread of anxious toil. Now, I've, I've dealt with anxiety a lot uh, in my life. It has definitely been a thing I've wrestled with. And, and I wonder in here if, if we've done the thought work about what, um, what anxiety really is. What is, what is anxiety? Like at its root, what, what is it? I'll tell you what it is. I think um, I'm borrowing this from somebody else who I've heard it from at some point, but it's been really helpful for me. Anxiety at its core is practical atheism, isn't it? Because what the anxious person is saying as they wring their hands and as they pace the floor and as they lose sleep, what they're saying in their life and in their insides is this, there is no God to help me. So I've got to help me. And it's exhausting. That's what anxiety is at its core, isn't it? It's, it's, it's being convinced that you are the only one who cares about what's going on with you. And you've got to figure that business out. And it will wear you down. And a panicky, anxious heart will almost always lead to compromise. And God will not be party to that. And you will be laboring in vain. So that's warning sign one, to test yourself against. Here's the second one. If the house you're building is meant for your glory, not God's. If the house you're building is meant for your glory, not God's, your labor will be in vain. Listen, if the things you're working toward are to make your name great, not his. You will have wasted your efforts. And see, this is a tricky one for us, isn't it? It's tricky for, for Christians in particular because we are experts at repackaging our self-glorification with God wrapping paper, right? We're experts at this. I'm just, I'm promoting the ministry of the Lord, Sully Deo Gloria. How many followers do I have, right? That's the, all day. That is what we do, isn't it? A.W. Tozer has one of my least favorite quotes in the world, uh, and he says this, and he wrote this in 1950, promoting self under the guise of promoting Christ is so common today as to excite little notice. You can't even spot it anymore. You can't even tell what it is. We're so accustomed to it. If the house that your building is meant for your glory and not God's, he will not be party to it and you will be laboring in vain. And I can't help but draw this application in light of that point that right now, we as a church are literally building a house, right? Just a few miles down the road a big 
wonderful, glorious, 67,000 square foot house for Arts Church family to move into. And listen, that is great news. Nobody is happier than me because I won't have to get here at 6 a.m. anymore, okay? This is great news, but listen, unless the Lord builds that house, we will have labored in vain and we will end up with a great, big, shiny, Fortune 500 church that has no power of God in it. I don't want that. I hope that you even now are praying with me that our hearts will not slip into thinking that somehow this building is a monument to our greatness or importance as a people, but rather a safe haven for the broken to come and glorify their savior. That's what it's for, amen? That's what it's for. If the house you're building is meant for your glory and not God's, you are laboring in vain. And the, and the last of the three warning signs is this. If the means by which you build the house dishonor God. Let me say that again. If the means by which you are building the house, if those means dishonor God. Now what, what do I mean? Well, you might have gotten the first two right, right? They're on lock. You have a, you have a worry-free, anxiety-free heart, and you might even have a, a noble, God-glorifying end in mind. But if the way you choose to get to that end requires you to sin and compromise, God will have no part in it, and your work will be in vain. You might be able to do it, you might do it, right? The issue is not, can you labor? The issue is, will your labor count for eternity? Uh, when I was um, graduating high school, uh, so 17, 18 at the time, my uh, brand new uh, Taylor guitar that my dad bought for me as a present uh, was stolen from the back of my car. Um, if it's one of you, Tell me. Uh, we never were able to find it. And, and I, it was a problem for me because uh, I was starting to get uh, shows and stuff and play, being asked to play for different things and weddings and all sorts of stuff like that. And well, you know, I, I didn't have anything to, to play with. And so I, I had to opt for you know, spending some of my savings and all that to buy another nice uh, guitar for all of these things that seemed to be coming up. And the guy who sold me the guitar uh, was really gracious. He let me buy, buy the guitar and bring it home with me to, to take care of some of my gigs without paying the full amount. He basically uh, graced me with being able to pay a portion and I could come back and pay the rest, which is a terrible idea to do uh, for a 17-year-old. Um, but, uh, but he did it and uh, God love him for it. So, so I had this guitar now, but now I had a problem. I had this thing. I got the end that I was looking for, this thing that I was intending to write songs with to glorify God and, and to lead worship with to glorify God. But the problem was I had a means issue at this point. Now I had to figure out how to fix the means to secure for myself the guitar. And I was racking my brain because I was broke as a joke. I didn't have any money. What was I supposed to do? I don't know. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and it occurred to me one day, I got it. 
I, I, I got the greatest idea. It, it, was, it was so brilliant and I'm so confident at this point that this idea was good that in bold joy, I go to my youth pastor after our Bible study and I pull him aside and I'm like, Ben, I figured it out, bro. I know I'm gonna pay for this. I'm gonna pirate illegal software <laughs> and sell it to my friends. Praise be to God. I, I don't know how more youth pastors don't get in trouble for slapping kids upside the back of the head. Uh, but he didn't. He didn't slap me. He, he just, uh, he looked at me and he said something that I will never forget. He said, Jimmy, with everything that happens in your life, you only get one story. You only get one story to tell about everything that happens. Do you want your story to be that in order to secure for yourself this guitar by which you're going to glorify Jesus with, you hawked illegal software to your buddies? Or do you want your story to be that you waited on the Lord and you trusted the one who loves you and cares for you and has your best in mind and he surprised you with a miracle. What story do you want? And so I waited. And two weeks after that, my mom came to me in the living room and said that uh, she found a card that I forgot to open from my graduation from my aunt. And inside that card was the exact amount of money I needed to pay off the guitar. That is a rightful means moment, but it almost wasn't for me, right? I, I almost corrupted the ends by altering and disforming the means. And so my question is, what was it that stopped me? What was the difference maker for me in that story? What was it that had the, the power to keep me uh, in that moment from laboring in vain? You know what it was? It was the last seven words of verse two. Let's look at it together. So he's just said this. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And then he writes these words, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Notice something here. What name does God call us? It is a powerful word. He calls us his beloved. We are his loved ones. We are the, the ones in which his soul delights and he wants our good. He wants it. And what does God give to his beloved according to verse two. What does he give them? It says right here, he gives us sleep. Which is a funny thing to say, isn't it? He gives them sleep. In other words, his gift to us is the peace of mind to know that the weight of the world does not have to be on our shoulders, but his. He can carry it. And that truth, 
is mind-boggling and marvelous. In fact, if today you're looking for a helpful takeaway, like one-line summary of what the gospel message is, what is this Christianity thing, what is the gospel? It is this, he gives to his beloved sleep. That's what he does. Now, I've been thinking about something for a long time. Uh, um, the, the, the more that I study scripture, the more I'm convinced that the great tragedy for many people on that last day, the day of judgment, the great tragedy for, for most people will not be the discovery of how much bad stuff they did. I don't think it'll be that. I think the great tragedy for most people on the last day will rather be how much good stuff they did in an attempt to save themselves instead of letting Jesus do it for them. I think that will be the great shock to most of the world. Jesus Christ came to earth and worked for us so that we could rest from our works. And I just wonder in a room of this size, how, how many of us just need to hear that and to rest from our works today? That we've been laboring and grinding and, and filled with anxious toil, trying to earn our way to God. And it's breaking your back if you're honest. And you feel it, you might not put it in these terms, but you, you know the feeling of just like, it's the cloud of guilt that hovers over you and, and, and until you can just do a little bit more, pray a little bit harder, read a little bit longer, share uh, the gospel with a little bit more people, then maybe you'll be okay. Maybe that house that you're laboring to build will be sturdy. He is saying, stop. Rest. I want to give you sleep. I want to make you my beloved. I want to wear the weight of the world. Let me carry it for you on your behalf. You do that and you'll be in good company with guys like George Whitfield. That was his story. Whitfield, if you don't know who he is, he is, he is most famously known for being probably the greatest preacher and evangelist of the first great awakening in the American colonies. But long before he was any of those things, when he was still living in England, going to uh, school at Oxford, he was really just, a, he was another young guy trying desperately to earn his way to God. Uh, he even joined, and probably some of you know this, he joined a, a club at Oxford called the Holy Club, uh, it had folks in it like John Wesley and Charles Wesley, uh, among others. And all this group of folks did all day, every day, was labor to earn their way into heaven. That's all that consumed their minds and thoughts. And listen to Whitfield write about his time in those days in his journal. Listen to the words he puts around it. Just imagine this. 
I began to fast twice a week for 36 hours together, prayed many times a day, and received the sacrament every Lord's Day. I fasted almost to death at the, all the 40 days of Lent, during which I made it a point of duty never to go less than three times a day to public worship, besides seven times a day to my private prayers, yet I knew no more that I was to be born a new creature in Christ Jesus than if I had never been born at all. Look at the work. I guarantee you, 100% of us in this room aren't doing half of that. Whitfield was a builder without God building. He was watching over the city without God watching. And this is what self-made religion does. It seeks to enter heaven by avoiding the cross instead of embracing it. This is what it is. By toiling anxiously to get some peace of mind that maybe you'll be good enough to be saved by God. But thanks be to God, it didn't work for Whitfield. It didn't work. He, he couldn't shake this nagging sense that he just still wasn't good enough. And it began to drive him literally mad. He left his friends. He left his community. He began to starve himself even more. He would lay outside on the ground face down for hours at a time, torturing his body by staying outside in the freezing cold to get frostbite on his hands. He was literally killing himself to get to God until one day by God's grace, he came to the end of his rope, which I would have got to a lot quicker by the way. And God showed him that he didn't need his labor. He needed Christ's labor for him. And there Likely on the grounds at Oxford, he rested from his work and he took hold of Jesus, the laborer who works on his behalf. And here's what he wrote about his conversion. Listen to the difference of flavor here. Listen to the rest here. God was pleased to remove the heavy load to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith and by giving me the spirit of adoption to seal me even to the day of everlasting redemption. Oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable, even joy that was full of and big with glory was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul. Surely it was a day to be had in everlasting remembrance. My joys were like a springtide and overflowed the banks. If you've wondered what Christianity is, it's this, it is resting from the nonsense of thinking that somehow you can build your house good enough or obedient enough or pure enough to meet the perfect standard of God. It's admitting you're a wreck and a failure and a terrible builder. 
And then it's looking to the cross where Jesus, God in the flesh, built your house for you. Each nail driven through his hand to the wood of that tree was a nail constructing the house that you and I could never build. It's a house called righteousness. It's a house called holiness. It's a house called obedience. And he gives it to his beloved. He gives it to us for free. And he tells us to take a nap. And he's inviting us to rest in him today. And I pray we would. Let's pray together. Take a minute. Just settle your heart before God. Ask him to, to help you. See what you need to see. Ask him maybe to show you those areas in your life where you are laboring without the labor of the Lord. If those things come to mind, this is the time to give those over to the Lord, to repent of that and to trust in the labor of Christ for you. Just take a moment to do that. God, we, we confess that we are constantly building houses that you have no part in. And I don't wanna to come to the end and to look at all I've constructed and see it to be hollow and vacant. God, would you build our house? Would you watch over our city? Would you do the work that we can't? You are the the potentate. You are the only sovereign. You are the one with the authority and the might to do something. And we're weak, we're fragile, and we're needy, and we're saying we're dependent on you. So God, please, please help us. Give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.